Hello and welcome to the British Dream, Vice's Politics Podcast. The British, British Dream. Dream. <coughs> what a pleasure it is to be back in Weatherspoons to sample all the weird novelty festive ales. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com, and today I'm joined by the only people who didn't have enough leave to book the week before Christmas off. Vice's Sam Wilson and Broadley's Sheeran Kale. The British dream that has inspired generations. Try to calm down. That dream is what I believe in. And behave like an adult. It's been a quiet year with only a Prime Minister shooting herself in the foot with a surprise election campaign interrupted by a horrifying terror attack in Manchester and quickly followed by a preventable inferno in West London described as social murder to distract us from Brexit and the threat of Donald Trump pressing the big red button. So on the podcast today... How is Brexit helping us take back control? You don't negotiate the right Brexit deal for Britain from a position of weakness. You do it from a position of strength. How the Grenfell Tower fire is a perfect metaphor for a fucked up society. If you deny local authorities the funding they need, then there is a price that's paid by the lack of safety facilities all over the country. And I think there needs to be some very searching questions asked as quickly as possible in the aftermath of this fire. And have we already forgotten the Westminster sex scandal? What we are talking about is the use and abuse of power. We must stand up for all the victims of abuse, harassment or discrimination, wherever it has occurred. But first, there was an election this year, remember? You're joking. Not another one? Oh, for God's sake, I can't, honestly, I can't stand this. It's early 2017. The Prime Minister's riding high in the polls, while even left-wing pundits are saying Jeremy Corbyn needs to step down as leader of the Labour Party. Theresa May goes on a walk in Wales with her husband and decides to call a general election to give herself a mandate over Brexit and destroy the Labour Party. But things didn't turn out like that. I think there was that new statesman cover maybe at the end of last year or the start of this year where it was like, can anyone save the Labour Party? And the general consensus was that there was no opposition. And it's so easy to forget that, like, it wasn't just the centrist dickheads or whatever. It was also a lot of people, like, on the left of the Labour Party being like, you know, we like his politics, but Jeremy Corbyn is actually a useless, uncharismatic man who, who can't do this. I guess it was the election campaign that just all completely changed. It's really amazing to see how fast things can change nowadays. Yeah, the narrative just switches, like, immediately. Yeah. From, like, Corbyn's an idiot, Theresa May is in control, to a complete, like... Suddenly, everything Theresa May does is like a hapless like blunder, and everything Corbyn does, basically, you know, even in areas he's not that strong on, is like a relative victory. I guess it's just like actually, so little has changed in terms of the balance of power and the people. Like Jeremy Corbyn is still a like slightly bad political manoeuvrer who can be a bit uncharismatic, but also has this like incredible campaigning ability and this huge base. Like Theresa May is still this kind of like battle horse politician who like doesn't really stand for much, but is still kind of just weathering the storm and trying to do this thing. Like it's all the more surprising how much things have changed considering how little has changed in so kind of the pieces that are on the on the board the players haven't changed but the game has changed i mean there's never been an election in our lifetime in which both party leaders have continued on after the election mm. which is itself this like weird stasis even though obviously everything is different as you're sort of saying the whole game is different now and i feel like 
the politics of like 2015 and 2016 were kind of building up to what's happened this year in terms of like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn gets in his Leave the Labour Party, he looks really weak, he looks, yeah, unstable, there's like constant challenges. And, you know, he kind of rides them and manages not to get dethroned. And then you get to 2017 and suddenly it's like the game is very different and suddenly he's a, a good person for like this kind of politics which we're now experiencing which is more sort of broad-based and just yeah just different just just not the like you have to be really good on good morning britain but the more like you have to be good on a stump and have loads of people cheering your name which Theresa may is like unable to do i feel like sadiq khan though is kind of an illustration of like how that old type of politics can still work like he's very kind of like machine driven he's very well prepared he never goes into a media interview without having read like a gazillion briefs so I feel like, although like the sands are like shifting really rapidly when it comes to like politics on the national scale, there is still space for like figures like that kind of like centrist dad type person that Sadiq Khan basically is to just get to like very high positions and like stay in them by being like very consistent. If we're looking at the uh, like the achievements of Jeremy Corbyn, Labour, Momentum, all these players who seem just completely, you know, like you say, like even people on the left thought they were quite useless is phenomenal like it can't you know I know that people are like well you didn't win the election but actually it has it is the most insane turnaround considering where Jeremy Corbyn was you know two years ago in terms of like when he was an outsider in the party and it is you know this really fundamental thing that's happened that has thrown out the rule book of what politics is I mean I guess for most of our lifetimes it has felt like we've been in a kind of stasis of like one centrist or the other and very little changes and in some ways that's been really good because it means that like the issues that people focus on are like bread and butter ones like housing and social exclusion and education and the NHS and things that matter in people's lives because the parameters in which politics is happening are very defined. Whereas now the politic, the parameters have been really fundamentally challenged, which is exciting because it's like anything could happen, but it's also quite bad for like bread and butter stuff, which, you know, this has been an absolutely terrible year for child poverty, you know, universal credit's been a disaster and all of those things are kind of like off the political agenda because there's just such... There's just so much variance, I think. Do you think it has been that bad for bread and butter issues? Like, you know, you're saying the NHS, universal credit, that's, that's all kind of all Jeremy Corbyn like, bangs on about every week in, week out. I suppose that is true, but in terms of what the government has been doing, and certainly where we are now, where like the political conversation is so focused around Brexit and power and like the machinations of Westminster... It doesn't feel like, you know, those debates are what is kind of driving the headlines and where there's a lot of will. And actually, you know, this huge disaster with, like, junior doctors or whatever has kind of been, like, swept away. Dropped off a bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think the fact that, like, you kind of get these stories in, like, page eight of the mail or whatever about, like, you know, kids coming to school hungry and and there's, you know, like, having jumble sales to, like, f pay teachers' salaries and all of this kind of thing. But no, that doesn't feel like the urgent issue of the day. And I mean, we have that column on Vice.com that's like everything but Brexit. And it's just like this huge list of like issues that aren't being really addressed. Mm. Even if Corbyn's like, I mean, again, like he's doing the broad strokes of like, we need a better NHS, we need an education. But 
it doesn't feel like, you know, when we were growing up, it was like those were the issues that were on the six o'clock news, and now it, it's not, it doesn't really feel like that. We did not get the victory we wanted. I hold my hands up for that. I take responsibility. I led the campaign, and I am sorry. It's weird to think how sort of despondent things felt when that election got called, and it felt so cynical and such an obvious, like, authoritarian power grab, and then how completely different things felt, like, in the immediate aftermath. About six months on, how do we kind of analyse it with our 2020 hindsight? I mean, I remember talking to you when it was called and just saying, like, this is going to be torturous because it's not even democracy, because we know what the result is and there's going to be no real... It's just going to be a way to sort of, like, trounce the Labour Party and the whole thing's going to be fixed. And obviously, it was a huge upheaval. And you have to wonder now, like, how much of a stronger position Theresa May would be in and Brexit would be in, you know, hard Brexiteers would be in if they hadn't called it because Labour, as far as we know, would still be kind of considered a bit of a joke. She would still be riding relatively high in the polls. She'd have a much bigger majority in Parliament, still a slim majority, but an actual majority rather than being held over a barrel by the DUP. She would be able to go a lot further in these negotiations. She wouldn't have been defeated on the bill that she just tried to get through about Parliament having a final say. Now she's straitjacketed in so many ways. Labour are this like very credible opposition. I mean, the one good thing I think she can claim from it is that she managed to get George Osborne out of Parliament because she called it about three or four weeks after he was announced as the editor of the Evening Standard mm. and at the time that was really viewed as like a kind of jokey like you know Ed Miliband was like I'm going to be the editor of Heat blah 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 but actually her getting rid of Osborne as this like credible Remainer like modernising Tory in was, Parliament was he, was he going to be editing the Evening Standard he was he was, he was going to be like moonlighting as an MP while editing yeah the he was Standard. supposed to be going to, you know he, he said this thing of well the Evening Standard is mostly edited in the morning and Parliament yeah. votes mostly in the afternoon it's like uh, have you ever been in a newsroom <laughs> removing him actually has meant that the Remainers don't have a very viable candidate probably the most viable candidate now is Amber Rudd who isn't that viable and is similar to Theresa May in a lot of ways and so were there to be a big pushback let's not forget that at, at that time there was talk of this like new centrist alliance emerging in parliament or a new party or you know were George Osborne yeah, and Tony Blair that talk never up. really stops it's like, I mean that talk never really stops but it was certainly a lot more it was a much more of a thing then so I guess that's one demon she's seen off but she's opened the door to about eight more I feel like everybody got really self-congratulatory probably ourselves included after the election because it wasn't such a bloodbath as we expected it to be for Labour mm. um, but now I look back on it the only like people I feel like we should be congratulating on are the British public because they kind of saw through all that cynical bullshit that the Tories thought, like were doing the Tories thought they could just dial in an election campaign. I yeah. mean, their manifesto was like nothing. Like, Theresa May didn't even turn up half the time. And the Tories thought that, like, we, people were just so dumb. And that the newspapers as well, like, the, the newspapers were so much in the Tories' pockets. Like, which newspapers were even still supporting Labour? Like, The Guardian and The Mirror, Salad? Mm. They, they, they basically thought that everyone was stupid and that they could do whatever they wanted. It's that kind of basic Tory principle of divine rule, you know, on yeah. like a grand scale. And it's very people weird did to look back at like yeah. how 
obviously arrogant. Their like launch of the election was and yeah, like not even turning up for like your own election campaign. That's what Theresa May basically did. She didn't even turn up. Like, it's like those peers who don't even turn up at the laws except to collect their voting allowance and then go home. You know, they, they think they can get away with it because they've always got away with it. Labour are like electioneering right now, right? Like they're still ploughing ahead with their manifesto. They're promising a lot. They're like all agreeing that like Jeremy Corbyn should be leader and that they all have a strong policy on Brexit, even though like there's actually rank disagreement because they're like trying to win votes. But what I don't understand is like it doesn't feel like the Tories are doing any of that. It doesn't feel like they're thinking about electoral politics at all. No, they're just not doing anything, are they? They're just like flaming. yeah, just in the in this thing of a process, which I guess makes it even stranger that Theresa May has held on. Yeah, and it feels like whenever they do try and actually do anything active it just the wheels completely fall off like Theresa May tried to sort of relaunch herself in her speech at Tory conference it's supposed to be the British Dream which is uh, the name of this podcast and then it turned out to be a complete nightmare are you taking credit for that yeah Yeah. totally yeah just like the the most disastrous conference speech I think really ever like it's hard to think of a worse speech I feel like the Ed Stone was like a similar political low for me, you know, when Ed Miliband unveiled that stone, like his tombstone. Yeah. I feel like that and that conference speech showed to me how like incredibly amateurish British politics is. Like all the people at the top they have a fucking clue what they're doing and it's kind of terrifying. Yeah, and it's politicians make like building a giant metaphor for their own shitness. I think also it's a really long game of like stasis chess where like Labour you know, after the election, they were like, Jeremy Corbyn's going to be prime minister in six months, blah, 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 you know. And now that seems less likely. So can Labour Party, like, hold together for, like, three, four years, if that's how long it's going to take for there to be another election? Probably not. But then can the Tories keep Theresa May on as leader for, like, three or four years just to sort of get through Brexit, even though she's unpopular and not good and there's loads of infighting? Probably not. So it's, like, this weird thing of, like who's going to blow up first. Do you really think Labour's going to blow up, though? Yeah, because actually there are huge disagreements in the Labour Party. There's a lot of people who read in the parliamentary Labour Party who really don't like Jeremy Corbyn. And there's this threat, you know, this threat of deselection. There's going to be, at some point, they are going to have to have a position on Brexit, which it seems increasingly is going to be a position that is kind of like... Brexit in all but name and that is going to you know that is going to make people in a lot of seats lose their seat you know in very Brexit communities most Labour MPs are in seats where people voted for Brexit and if it feels like they're going to lose that vote then of course there's going to be mutiny so everyone is kind of trying to see how long they can keep things going for before they blink we kind of talked about like how boring politics is at the moment but this whole thing of like it's in no one's interest to make the first move it's in no one's interest to like let something happen come out with a clear statement like whatever it's weird that we're in this like very tumultuous time but it feels so slow i've been clear about my plan for brexit at every in 2016 britain voted to take back control of our lives by leaving the eu in 2017 we've discovered what that means waiting to hear what david davis thinks of liam fox's latest gaffe and how that'll go down with jacob rees-mogg so How has Brexit defined politics this year? However bad it seemed before, I feel like it just seems so much worse now in every possible way that you can think about it. I mean, there was a report saying that 
people are gonna in Britain will be more nutritionally starved because they'll be eating less fruit and vegetables because fruit and vegetables are going to be more expensive. It's like that level of awful. We are more powerless because we have less options for allies. Uh, we are going to be seriously economically hindered. Huge industries are already moving to Europe and are going to stay there. Like I think there was interesting arguments for why Brexit might be a good thing. But the main takeaway from this year, I think, has to be that, like, certainly not in our lifetimes are we going to feel a single benefit from it. It's going to be all terrible. I don't know if anyone disagrees with that. Sam, you're talking, you're talking about how uh, kids are going to get worse nutrition because of Brexit, all these, like, very apocalyptic social ills or, like, impacts that are going to happen for it. I feel like the first half of that year was spent a lot talking about that kind of thing. Some of it really genuinely horrifying, some of it perhaps a bit alarmist. Certainly I think there, there is a constituency, there's a market for like Brexit doom-mongering type news, mm. which you kind of shouldn't lose sight of. And then I feel like the second half of this year, or certainly or at least the last few months, has been more spent where the news is just, yeah, talking about negotiations and what a very small band of like the right wing of the Tory cabinet thinks. Like every single news update to me seems to be like, oh, the Tory right aren't gonna be happy with this. Or like the Brexiteers in the cabinet aren't gonna be happy with this. And it's like, that's the news now. It's like the news is waiting on what Liam Fox thinks. Yeah. Which I find really disheartening and boring, especially since obviously it's like a movement that was, however wrongly, it was supposed to be like a democratic thing where you take back control. And now we've seen it's just so obviously the politics of a very small clique of like ideologues in the Conservative Party and what they think is really the most important thing. A lot of it's just untrue. Like we've talked a lot about fake news this year in terms of electoral politics and Trump and the Daily Mail and all of that kind of thing. But also you've got this other kind of fake news, which is totally understandable, which is that we are in a negotiation process and during a negotiation process the idea at least even though the Tories have been very bad at this is that you don't show your hand and you create scenarios and show your intent to walk away from the table and all of this kind of thing um, as much as possible because words don't cost anything you know whereas a, a divorce bill does and so so much of the news has been saying you know Boris Johnson says they can go whistle David Davis says this you know it's not legally binding all of these different things which isn't you know isn't really a reflection of anyone's position it's a reflection of the kind of brinkmanship that you need to do in a debate and no one you know th that doesn't seem to affect the reporting every time it's happens it's like well so and so said this and so and so said this and it's kind of this weird catch 22 whereas if you admit it's all nonsense as i think most people within the political sphere do, mm. you know, then they have to double down and show even more that they would accept a no Brexit. And equally from the European side, every time that a European negotiator says like, Britain really haven't got their house in order, you know, like they don't know what's going on. They're so unprepared for negotiations. That's accepted by Remainers as like proof that the whole thing's a disaster. Yeah. Whereas European negotiators have just as much uh, incentive to say stuff like that, whether it's true or not, you know?
like you say, it has moved away from like the issues and the impact of Brexit and obviously the lack of research and, and the suppression of research into what might happen during Brexit. Uh, you know, unless you read the Financial Times, which actually is quite good on that kind of thing because it's people's money at stake, uh, has kind of been blown aside. But what it's been replaced with is like just people sounding off and seeing what they can get away with, which really is the worst kind of reporting, the worst the worst thing that you can have to like kind of aid your understanding of, of what's going on. Yeah, it's like we're reading everyone's bluffs at all time and then they're kind of turning into these like viral hits where someone says something like about how terrible like the British camp is and then all the people who are like really strong Remainers are like, oh my God, I can't believe how like embarrassing Britain's position is. And by the same token, whenever like Boris Johnson says something chippy, the whole of Brexiteer land goes crazy for that. We spent the whole year doing phase one, basically. It feels like we're going to spend a lot of next year doing phase two of Brexit. Do we think, despite everything, we're actually sort of getting somewhere? I guess it's just whose definition of getting somewhere. I mean, a lot of people were like, yeah, Theresa May did a great job. She got through all of this stuff. But I mean, the government have capitulated on basically every point now for people who were not in favor of brexit to begin with some of those capitulations are probably a good thing obviously no one's super keen on handing over 50 billion pounds or whatever it'll end up being to the eu but if it means that her capitulations mean that we're going to have a softer brexit then you know i'm obviously for that but she and david davis might not see it as such a success but it has been a failure i mean in the times, her greatest fuck up, it really seems like, is to have triggered Article 50 when she did. Because she triggered it, then she had an election, and then the negotiations have stalled and stalemated. And there just isn't time to do a proper job. And that has weakened Britain's position immeasurably, you know? Article 50 was a lever she could pull. You know, she's given that away. All the levers that she's been able to pull, she's kind of given away. She's given away the possibility of a no deal. And so it's hard to see how negotiations are going to proceed now beyond the EU saying, you know, this is what it's going to be like. You can choose whether you want the single market or this kind of deal, but we're going to completely dictate the terms of either. Sort of one of the themes of next year is going to be finding out what sort of end game at least the Tory cabinet's going for, because I think this week they started actually discussing that for the first time, because mm. they haven't been able to talk about what they want to happen yet, because that's going to cause so much disunity between like hard Brexiteers and Remainers and soft Brexiteers. Uh, so I feel like in 2018 we'll kind of get some sort of idea of what they're actually looking to happen, and we don't even know that yet. I also think that the no Brexit at all, a kind of stay in the EU option, will get floated more next year. I think after the vote, it seemed like a lot of people were like, well, that's democracy. And actually the proportion of people who didn't want any Brexit was very small. You know, there was like Bramonas, whatever they're called. And then there was yeah. like Remainers who accepted the referendum. But I think that that is changing now. And, and if it seems like we're going to get either a kind of Brexit in name only or a really shit deal, people might start raising that possibility again. Mm. And then the political space could open for, I don't know, for Jeremy Corbyn to feel able to bring the Labour Party into a more Remain position or something else to happen. Yeah, who bloody knows? <laughs> it's smoke, it's dark, it's scary, it's trip acid. 
There's poor hazard, there's all sorts, there's elderly, there's children, there's disabled. So it seems like one of the biggest and sort of darkest stories of the year. Uh, in June, a fire started in Grenfell Tower in Kensington, West London, and it spread at an alarming rate, engulfing the tower in a number of minutes. And the inferno caused, we later found out, 71 deaths, and the building's burnt out husk is still looming over West London. Seemingly, it's a, a monument not just to one disaster, but to a social order that doesn't really care. I don't know, to me, this really kind of summed up a lot of what is wrong with UK society in general. The fact that the residents in the tower basically warned everyone that only a massive disaster was going to shed light on the concerns they had raised about fire safety for ages beforehand. Uh, and then following it, the real contempt of the authorities, of Theresa May, who couldn't even sort of manage to look like she cared, and the sort of official response, which to this day hasn't rehoused everyone, has been incredibly slow at offering people help. And I don't know, I kind of just think, if, if you were someone who didn't know anything about this country, and you were asking, what story from this year should I read to really understand Britain and its society, I would say you've got to read about Grenfell Tower and that will kind of tell you everything you need to know. It talks about power at the bottom level, the kind of levels of power that we tend to ignore, uh, you know, councils and housing, in which there clearly it has been in this case a lot of terrible decision-making, corruption, uh, decisions made for profit over people, and still to this day, you know, the management by... Kensington Chelsea Council has been terrible because they have not rehoused most of the families uh, and they are treating it in the same way as they would treat kind of, you know, a day-to-day -day thing rather than this, like, national emergency. Mm. Um, but it also speaks to these bigger issues of, um, you know, the housing crisis and the way in which money in this country is proportioned and obviously David Cameron's famous like bonfire of red tape which is one of the worst expressions <laughs> that could ever come back to haunt someone also it's shown kind of everything that we've been talking about that like so much has been forgotten as we've gone through this like period of political turmoil mm. and even now in the last, since it's happened it doesn't feel like the government have been able to mount a good response to it and i think like the good comparison is is hillsborough which was an event at a football match at liverpool but actually the response and what came after has kind of trickled down through British politics for 20 years ongoing. Yeah, but it took 20 years of campaigning to get there. Absolutely, and I think it will take probably 20 years of campaigning to get here, but I think that we will feel this in lots of ways for a long time to come. And in the case of Hillsborough, it was the kind of absolute disdain that the tabloids and some members of the government had for football fans in the north of England. And I feel like you can feel that similar disdain, not so much from the tabloids actually in this case, but from members of the kind of rank part of the Conservative Party. I mean, there was that whole thing with Ben Goldsmith uh, this week, who's Zach Goldsmith's brother uh -huh. and a sort of West London party boy who was having a, a kind of costume party on the day of the Day of Silence in 
the uh, protest, the six months on protest, and, and was kind of making a racket during the moment silence uh, and tweeting about this is what Corbyn's Britain would look like and making all these accusations about the... Because oh, he, got, he got dragged for it, basically. And, yeah, um... but he wasn't just like, oh, whoops, I had my party on the wrong day. He, he was like tweeting about it. He did a thing in the Daily Mail about it, you know, like, and I think that that, you know, that kind of attitude from, from the worst kind of, of West London Tories, you know, people will remember that. I feel like there's a real um, like parallel between like the kind of contempt that Theresa May showed the British public in her behaviour during the general election campaign. Like, I'm not going to turn up for this. I don't need to show up. I can just dance in. And like, just like the consistently like really contemptuous way that the Grenfell residents were treated before and after the fire. Mm. Um, before the fire when they tried to raise their alarms about the safety of the building and after the fire when they were campaigning for relatively, relatively minor requests like a safe place to live in the place that they have jobs and kids in schools. Um, I feel like Grenfell for me will always be like just a horrible metaphor for how incredibly unequal our society is becoming. I guess like one thing that's very stark is that this wasn't dealt with the way that we deal with, say, a terror attack, which I think another thing we've learned this year is that we're actually pretty good at dealing with a terror attack. But this has been kind of chucked from pillar to post. It's still in the hands of this council who clearly are partly responsible for what happened and are completely incapable of dealing with the aftermath. And there isn't the actual machinery of government to sort this out. It's obviously difficult, but it's not impossible with the right kind of effort and teams to A, house everyone in the area, and B, distribute the like huge amounts of donations and funding and whatever to the people who need it the most. And neither of those things have happened. It's been six months. Yeah, I and mean, Theresa May said it was going to be three weeks yeah. at the start, which um, I, I went to this uh, Grenfell response meeting, which was kind of like a meeting of the like official government bodies and the NHS and stuff. And the kind of uh, bewilderment of the local council, I think, really told a story where, like, they couldn't really conceive of it as, like, an absolutely vital, like, crisis that needs to be sorted now. And, like, the longer you don't sort it out, the longer, the, the, the worse the trauma is for the victims and stuff like that. It, they, they were kind of viewing it as, like, a local council problem that, you know, oh, th things take time, you know. Of course, it's really difficult to rehouse people and so on. And I'm sure it is, but, like... The lack of like real seriousness, kind of, I thought, forestalled the kind of imagining of what like a decent response would be, you know? Yeah. Like a decent response to this crisis would be like very quick rehousing of people, not in hotels, but in like you know you'd like requisition empty properties. That, that you know that should be a, if, if you're taking I mean, it seriously. That in should all be a given. seriousness, in six months you could have built a lovely new tower block and put everyone in it. That's right on a on the closest Branfield site to where Grenfell is. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, that requisitions. kind of thinking is what I'm not saying that's the right answer, but I'm saying like that kind of thinking, that kind of investment, you know, was needed here. Not this like wishy-washy like oh we found one council house that's come up and we're gonna put you ahead of some other family that desperately needs it or whatever you know what i mean it's like mm. it's just being done in the most like cat-handed like low budget way yeah it's like this horribly like bureaucratic and i'm not sure pragmatic is the word i want but like you should almost deal with it on a like quite idealistic level where it's like this is absolutely disgraceful and wrong that it happened and so we're going to do like everything imaginable to sort it out as opposed to, we're going to do like what's possible within the ages of the local council to, within six months, not even house everyone. And I still think, you know, 
maybe this isn't as important, but it's important when you hear it. Like, when those people from the council go on Radio 4 or whatever, there's still an ugliness and a disdain and a nasty vibe in the way that they're approaching this. You know, mm. like, that they're not being appreciated enough or that their efforts aren't... You know, it's a really bad vibe. Or and even it, that, like, oh, we totally understand, but it's like, you don't, you know? Yeah, you know? Or, or they'll deny that people's condition is and such and such. You know, it's a, it's a really bad vibe. It's not, an, it's not like what you just said of apologies and we're going to try and do anything to make this better. And, uh, you know, we don't talk much about local politics here, but... In, you know in this country in general and part of the reason for that is that local papers have died out and young people certainly don't read the ones that remain and it's not that interesting if you don't live in a place but actually corruption at a local level and and really bad politics at a local level is out of control now is the time to act decisively without fear or favor to guarantee a safe and respectful working environment for everyone in the future I think in a lot of yearly review things for 2017, the topic of sexual abuse is going to come up a lot. Uh, obviously, Westminster's no different, but it feels like a bit of a scandal that's kind of gone away in terms of the Westminster sexual abuse scandal, right? Yeah, so I think what's really interesting with the Westminster sexual abuse scandal was how quickly it blew up and then how quickly it disappeared, which I think kind of in part due to like the nature of our parliamentary systems um, and also just in part down to like how quickly the news cycle moves on nowadays. I also think there's this really grim appetite for hearing these stories from women because it does make like really salacious ne like media coverage. It's, you know, like when Bex Bailey told about her like experience of being raped by a Labour Party activist or when like Kate Maltby made those allegations. People love to pick over the salacious details of it. Like people love to hear like who allegedly did what in a hotel room at which party conference. But there's actually not a significant amount of appetite, I think, to deal with it, apart from that. Like, it was, what, like six weeks ago now that everybody was absolutely gleeful over that list of Tory MPs and ministers that were circulating, alleging that this person got their mistress pregnant and that, like, this person's having an affair with this researcher. But once everybody looks at that list and gossips about it, everybody basically moves on. There's been a sacrificial lamb and Michael Fallon, although I'd argue that he's not really a sacrificial lamb, he's just telling what he deserves. But, you know, Damien Green is still limping on. There have been, like, two allegations against him, plus claims that pornography has been found on his work computer. I don't know what sort of porn. There's been, as far as I know, very few arrests. Um, and what's weird is that we're kind of already now moving to this like anti-witch um, hunt narrative, which is like, oh, but you know, like, how terrible is it these these people are being victimised and handed out their jobs, but nothing's actually happening. And I think to go back to my earlier point about um, how our parliamentary system is not sort of set up to support this, when you're looking at someone like Theresa May, who has such a wake within majority, like, she can't start firing backbench MPs. She can't do that. She, she doesn't have the ability to do that. Jeremy Corbyn, um, for all everybody likes to think that he's some sort of messiah-like figure, has always had a really shady record when it comes to women um, and has consistently never really come up with any significant policies that look at women's rights or women's issues at all. In fact, I think he's literally being shaded on Twitter right now by a Grazia writer who's asking him why he didn't give oh, yeah. a single interview to a women's magazine during the election. 
but he did do two men's magazines and one music magazine, so I think that shows that he really doesn't have any time for women's issues at all. Um, look, I don't think there's any real real desire or effort to actually do anything about the Westminster sex abuse allegations. I think that they make nice newspaper headlines, a couple of people that conveniently dot and rid of, and that's basically it. But I also think this is the nature of politics. I think we were talking about this earlier. You were saying that, you know, uh, it's so important to have leverage over people and traditionally sexual abuse allegations or affairs have always been like one thing that people have gone for. Yeah, I mean, I, th I thought that was one of the really, really disgusting things to come out of that was the fact that Theresa May had like a weekly briefing about basically who's shagging who and how can you sort of use that to whip them into voting the way you want or whatever. And in that kind of... Uh, political landscape it's obviously going to be very difficult to really deal with sexual abuse as like a problem in and of itself because you're basically using all sexual things from like abuse to like just being gay and in the closet to as like a weapon to like hold over people so she got this really slim majority so then looked at through the same lens and for the same reasons basically she then can't deal with it it's very hard to take a no tolerance approach to this kind of thing if you're in a hung parliament where you're losing a major vote by four votes it's very hard to remove the whip from people or to say the whips office will never use i mean they are saying that that the whips office will never use this kind of information again but equally, you know, we know one thing we do know about Theresa May is that she will kind of hang on to power at any cost. And it feels like this is going to be one of the costs at which she's willing to hang on to power. Obviously, it's not like this is the first time Westminster has been rocked by a sex scandal. Um, and even though it is seeming to be hushed up or like the focus has gone away fairly quickly, at the same time, it seems like a bigger scandal than previous ones. Um, so what do you think actually changed? There's always been sex scandals in Westminster and some Westminster sex scandals have actually been quite a lot of fun. Like I'm thinking of like Edwina Curry here. Um, but the difference here is that it's it's the nature of the sex scandals that we're discussing. I mean, what I'd arguably say that we're discussing here isn't even really like sex scandals, it's like power and abuse scandals. It's 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 just a completely different thing because we're not talking about, you know, like two cabinet ministers having a consensual relationship when they're married to other people, which is do what you want, I don't really care. What we're talking about is a real kind of seismic shift in like the culture of politics, which is that for a long time, behaviour was seen as acceptable that isn't acceptable and that people who made a fuss about it were blacklisted and ostracised. Mm. But we're fundamentally shifting how we look at abuse and what sort of behaviour we're willing to tolerate, especially when you look at how like the Palace of Westminster is this kind of like shady old place full of like half dead old men. There's a there's a change in understanding of like how things don't have to be the way that they always were and people who speak out about abuse aren't just being difficult or lied and, and, and things can change and they should change. In terms of like women who speak out being respected, I think that is true, except in uh memorably in the pages of the Daily Mail oh my God. where um, yeah. they sort of did this weird hatchet job on Kate Mulby. Yeah. but I guess I feel like maybe what's changed is that that felt very strange and against the zeitgeist and out of date and like tone deaf whereas maybe years ago it would have been like the majority of the coverage perhaps would have been like casting aspersions about people who speak out or, or you just you just wouldn't have got this level of accusations in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to remember though that like for all the progress we've made, they did do a hatchet job on her. Mm. And a lot of people have read that hatchet job and thought, well, she was asking for it, she deserves it. Yeah. And so like, we're not in this kind of um, utopia of 
incredible respect and trust and empathy for like all survivors of sexual abuse and violence. Like we're way off that. But yeah, people were shocked and appalled by that, rightly so. And I think that things are changing. I don't think they're changing as quickly as I would like, but I do think there's been quite a lot of change in the last couple of months. I wonder whether there's actually going to be any like really meaningful like systems put in place to deal with this stuff, apart from just like firing a few rotten eggs. Like, how are we actually going to systematically change the culture? I wonder whether like moving out of the Palace of Westminster when the roof finally falls in and going into like a new venue and like just casting out all that old crap might help a little bit. But I'm still quite sceptical. Well, yeah, thanks, guys, for looking back on a fantastic 12 months. Obviously, next year will be way, way better. Kicking off with Donald Trump visiting. Woo! <laughs> Presumably cause massive riots. And yeah, <laughs> I think there will be some riots. I think that could be fun. Yeah, some, some light social disorder to kick off 2018. We still still TVs. 2016 is very famous for being a bad year, but if you look at the kind of review of the year stuff from 2015, it was also like, this is the worst year ever. And the review of the year this, from this year is very much like, this is the worst year ever. So, like, I just can't imagine how 2018 is going to top it, but I really think we'll find a way. <laughs> Thanks, Sam and Sharon. Merry Christmas to you both. And please, please come back next year. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. Next year we'll have more politics, so no doubt there'll be more of the British dream. In fact, we know there will be. Stay positive. <laughs>